What's up, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of City of Champions, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. So, first off, speaking of ATB, they know that being an entrepreneur and business owner has its challenges, including finding time to get the help that you need. So that's why they've created their Entrepreneur Centers, which are now coming to a community near you. With new pop-up locations each month, ATB is bringing their 360-degree entrepreneur support services to you. So whether you're dreaming up, building, or growing, you can access a powerful set of tools to help your business and personal finances grow together. Visit albertaentrepreneurcenter.com to find out where they are popping up. So, ladies and gentlemen, this week I'm very pleased to have on Edmonton Ward 4 City Councilor Aaron Paquette. The counselor is a man of many talents, and some of which include author, artist, illustrator, public speaker, goldsmith, and even stained glass window builder. He brings a wealth of experience and perspective to City Hall, which is a major asset. In this wide-ranging conversation, we talk about things like reframing divisive issues with a comedic approach, something the counselor does a lot of on Twitter. Uh, we talk about the process of creating art and its subjective nature talk about social problems we face as a society and the ways in which we might better approach them. And of course, we spend some valuable time talking about his mother, a hero in his eyes, who taught him passion for community and what can be accomplished with ingenuity and hard work. I can't thank the counselor enough for his time. Uh, the knowledge and mindset he brings to the world is extremely valuable, and he's someone anyone can learn a lot from. So sit back, Relax and enjoy my conversation with Councillor Aaron Paquette. Yeah, my biggest fear is that the mic's not on. Sometimes with the program I use, GarageBand, um, if I've saved it, closed my laptop and opened it a few times and then I hit play, the audio doesn't play. Right. And it's just gone. So I realize if I, if I uh, quit it and then reopen it, it's there. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, it looks like the levels are working and we're live. Levels working? Yeah. We're there I am. Bop. Bop. With yep. Edmonton Ward 4 <laughs> Counselor, Aaron Paquette. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. It's uh, it's been it's been an interesting journey so far, um, having a chat with a lot of the city councillors, and um, this is one I was really excited for. Uh, so thanks for inviting me down into your space. Hey, you're always welcome. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you tackle a lot of, of um, tough topics when it comes to the city, you know, a lot of people with a lot of differing, um, you know, opinions and, and wants and needs. But I want to talk about one that's really relevant today and pressing, and that's the name of the new library downtown. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because you had an awesome tweet that I saw the other day asking for, for names. Right. Kind of making jest of a situation that some people seem to be taking a little too seriously. Right. And uh, I hope no one's upset with me for that. <laughs> uh, I know that the, it's a time of sensitive emotions. And uh, the way I saw it is... Um, if people are, are really feeling passionately about something, um, don't try to stop them from feeling passionate. You know, mm -hmm. encourage it and uh, let them get it out and maybe turn it into something positive. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the goal of that. It was right? really, really interesting sort of political maneuver to turn that into what you did and, and you know, offering up the name that you did, Bibliotank. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. That's well, my favorite so far. Look, the, the building is what it is. Mm -hmm. And you're going to love it, or you're going to hate it, or you're not going to feel anything about it at all, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's what we've got. So how do you embrace it? Yeah. You know, can, can, maybe you want to feel bitter about it for the next 30 years, and if so, that's totally your prerogative. Um, I also kind of, I guess, I'm in the camp where I kind of wish it was a little bit more aspirational mm. architecturally, mm -hmm. but it's what we've got. And uh, so, you know, what do you do? Yeah. Well, it's time to, you know, you got you to gotta find what you love about it. Exactly. And we haven't even seen the inside yet, right? Are you going to spend more time right. inside or outside? I guess depending on the So the there's two camps there. Yeah. The inside people are saying, well, this is where the heart is. This is what matters. You know, don't be so shallow, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and it is actually, by the way, going to be phenomenal inside. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's the camp that says, okay, but architecture is an art form in its own right. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you want to be able to look at something and and see beauty or see something of interest mm -hmm. and that's what people are looking for and that that's legitimate as well because mm -hmm. the way a city looks sort of 
determines its personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. I mean, you're you're an artist yourself and a multifaceted one at that. There's a lot of different things that you've done. But just from an artist's perspective, I mean, how important is is the actual visual objective appearance of something versus the the interpretation, the meaning behind it? Because so I, I don't recognize anything in art like I see, and I have to be. It has to be explained to me. When I was a very young artist, um, you know, one of the things that you're concerned about is. Is anyone going to like my art enough to purchase? Mm-hmm. So there's two routes you can go as an artist. One is you can go the um, the grant route, mm-hmm. where you're fully subsidized, so you create whatever you think of without any thought for the market, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's one direction. People take it, and that's where you get your controversies and people getting upset because you've got dead rabbits hanging in the forest, right? <laughs> and, and the Remember government's paying for it. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got another route where you say, okay, so I'm going to create things I'm going to make a living out of this in a career so what am I creating that is true to me but also resonates with others mm-hmm. and Alex Janvier a uh, great artist world-renowned Alberta artist and mm-hmm. we've got lots of his work in this city um, he pulled me aside once and he said listen I'm going to tell you the secret of my success he said yes I'm I'm pretty good uh, yeah. pen and paper here but it's the it's the rationale mm-hmm. and that is that you can be angry and a lot of artists are angry and mm-hmm. often for good reason and you can paint that go mm-hmm. ahead but no one hangs ugly over their couch mm-hmm. he said you can talk about any issue you want but give people a way to access it mm-hmm. right so aesthetics matter mm-hmm if you want to invite someone into a conversation, you can't start out by shouting in their face. <laughs> Unless it's on Twitter. Unless it's on Twitter. And then I'm not sure what the what the, what the value of that conversation is going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, if you can give people a point of entry, be it humor, mm-hmm. humility, whatever it is, beauty, yeah. then, uh, then you've got a conversation that can actually happen. Mm. And so my goal with that tweet was to invite people in with humor good nature a little bit of love for the yeah. foibles of our city yeah. and uh learn to embrace this in a really positive way yeah yeah, yeah that, that's great i mean you could definitely transfer that slogan like take a chance it's the most evident thing the edmonton thing you can do and just slap that right on the library because we were being bold and ambitious with that it design, is, right yeah and it is and so look if you ask me i think it's going to be a cool building mm-hmm. um and it was ambitious, but the realities of, of, of money mm-hmm. came into play. Like, let's remember that, you know, because people are obviously and automatically going to compare it to the Calgary Library, right? right? Which right. is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And um, also extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. For the same price of that library, we built over half a dozen incredible local libraries mm-hmm. that, have, that, are, that have won awards. And, uh, and also our downtown library. So we built all of those libraries for the same price tag as that one in Calgary, mm-hmm. right? Now you can make the argument, well, we should have invested a little bit more. We should have uh, got different architecture and all of these different things, but we didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't, exactly. And here we are now, so how are you going to move forward? I think people lose sight of the gratitude of the fact that we're even in a position in which we can debate these things. Oh, yeah. Right? This we're is not absolutely a first world problem. Like, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely it is. I mean, at the end of the day, like that, that should always be your grounding sort of centering sentiment is, is that just, you know, we're so lucky to be here. We've got a clean, beautiful, prospering city. We've got transit. We've got clean water. We've got mm-hmm. uh, systems that actually work. Mm-hmm. And so we are free to debate things like architecture. Mm-hmm. It sounds honestly like a philosopher's dream yeah. that you've got uh, this this city in the future where their debates will be architecture. Yeah, a bunch of Spocks on city council just debating. <laughs> right. Um, so I mean, since you've taken city council, have you had much time to put into into your artistic pursuits? I put a, a little bit of time in every week. Mm-hmm. Um, that's you know everyone's got a hobby yeah and i guess you can say that that's mine is uh you you know keeping that spark of my old career alive Mm -hmm. so i write um i will paint i'll do a little bit of music or i'll go and uh, speak to youth or Mm -hmm. um uh, work with an organization briefly like on a weekend you know just different things like that just 
keeping things uh, balanced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because in this job, you can quickly find an enormous amount of imbalance mm -hmm. in your in your personal life and your professional life. I'm sure. Yeah, they, they, just speaking to a few of the other counselors, you know, the time commitment is the thing that surprised most of them yeah. when they took the job. Not saying that they were, they said, you know, obviously we weren't unprepared for the amount of time, but just surprised that it was actually as much as that, as it is. So I wasn't surprised mm -hmm. um, because I talked to a lot of politicians ahead of time. Um, but I think the public, they don't expect us to be doing this job 24-7. Some do, obviously. Some people sure. expect that you're doing it 24-7. But um, most reasonable people understand that that is actually unsustainable and you're not going to get your best work out of people mm -hmm. if you do that. That's simply just poor management. Mm -hmm. uh, you Like any good manager, any good organization um, does not work their people to death. Mm -hmm. What they do is they is they give them proper rest, they give them proper personal time, they give them proper mentorship and learning opportunities, and then they give them uh, places to succeed and fail within uh, their optimum work time. Otherwise, what you get is just a whole lot of mistakes and a lot of weariness, and you don't get the engagement and the thought that you that frankly the public deserves from from their politicians right yeah yeah i mean that was a long answer that was a good answer though and it's it's not dissimilar to how i see you know nurses and doctors getting run off their feet right. i mean i i can't believe that in 2019 we're we're at a point where they work the long shifts that they do when we know that that the lack of sleep impairs you to a degree not dissimilar to to drinking alcohol right, right? like these people can be more impaired from, from sleep deprivation. Oh, and yet we're, they're the ones we entrust to take care of the most sick and vulnerable and, and most desperate at times. Right? Now, that being said, you do get used to uh, you know, operating on five hours of sleep. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure it takes years off of life, but you get used to it and doctors get used to it. But there's a reason why airlines say there must be. Mm. Uh, the, you know, yeah. the airlines didn't say it, but this is why it was instituted onto the airlines. You have to give your pilots at least eight hours right between shifts yeah uh, just for the safety of people so mm -hmm. why we don't do that in our healthcare, mm -hmm. I don't know and why we wouldn't do that um, when it comes to political decisions that actually impact people's lives right this could anyway. be decade or century long decisions yeah <laughs> so that didn't so the time commitment didn't surprise you what did surprise you if anything when you took office because they um, don't really give you a user manual when you when you come on board no they don't that's true what surprised me, I think, is, I, and to be frank, what surprised me was the fact that everyone here actually is trying to do the best job possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, because you hear a lot of things like, oh, you know, they don't care, or they're not invested. Haven't found that at all. Mm -hmm. In fact, the, the complete opposite. I found that everyone I'm working with is actually passionate about doing a good job. Because mm -hmm. it's not easy to get where you guys are. Right? No, like, it's not. Like, you have to apply. You have to door knock. You have to campaign. You have to do all that. Like, why would someone do that if they didn't actually care about making a difference? Right. Um, you know, obviously, there's some cynicism that can occur. You know, mm -hmm. uh, one stat that people always throw at me is like, "Oh, you know, um, there are people who get in and they just stay in and they don't do anything, mm -hmm. and you need fresh blood." And mm -hmm. that's true, mm -hmm. but. I haven't, I haven't personally encountered it. Right. What I have encountered, though, is the fact that there are people who've been here, uh, elected officials, for you know ten years or more, mm -hmm. and I was in the camp before I got in here where I thought, you know, at some point you just got to leave. Right. Yeah, right. Like you got to make room for fresh blood and new ideas. I still stand by that, but I also have found that that institutional knowledge. Mm -hmm. The, for, from the people who have been here for a decade or more is profoundly valuable right because they know where you've been why you why you've been there mm -hmm. the path it took to get where you are today and that really helps inform where you're going to go tomorrow right and if you get rid of all that institutionalized knowledge and you just bring in a whole bunch of green people mm -hmm. into this position can you imagine mm -hmm. so you've got to manage an entire administration through You've got two employees, council has two employees, mm -hmm. and then those employees manage uh, everything else. Mm -hmm. If you don't understand how that complex system works, 
kind of in trouble. That's not going to lead to great decision making. So it's good to have that sort of mentorship yeah. and that sort of uh, turnaround where you don't suddenly just clean the decks and bring in all new people, mm-hmm. which you hear people like, you know, in the public saying, oh, you know, get rid of all the bums, bring in a whole <laughs> new <laughs> council, right? Yeah. Well, you need people to pass down the history of why decisions were made too. Not only the, the functional knowledge of how to do what you're doing, but also, you know, why we made these decisions in the past, sort of that, that balance between tradition and new ideas. Right. right, it's it's same same with liberal and conservative. Everything's got to push and a pull. You have to have that resistance in order to make the middle ground better. So I'm gonna I'm gonna add something in here about awesome. that. So municipally, yeah, we don't we don't have like obvious political you know allegiances or mm-hmm. parties or yeah. anything like that. And my hope is that Edmonton never does that. They've right. got that in Vancouver. They've got in Toronto. Oh, they've got okay. all over the place. Right here, we don't. Here, um, you don't have to be whipped into a decision mm-hmm. by a party whip. You don't have to follow exactly what a leader is saying. Um, the beauty of our system is that everyone is free to vote and debate uh, according to their conscience. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's tough. And uh, like we know that that's the reality of the party system where you've got your backbenchers and uh, you know they have input. But at the end of the day, what we see in party politics is that you've got parties that kind of vote in blocks no matter what, Mm -hmm. right? Which works on the provincial and federal level. I can't see how in Edmonton that would be beneficial. Mm -hmm. I think it's good to be able to um, have open conversations without people automatically retreating into a camp or an an ideology. Right. Yeah. Because now you've you've got a collection of individuals from varied backgrounds bringing their intent to do good for the community uh, with, with a ton of different experiences. And you know, I know you guys have to dive into a ton of different topics and, and you've got a short amount of time to do that. So you're kind of like not dissimilar to this podcast. You're, you're deep diving in on a subject and then having to go present or make a decision on it. Right, yeah. And if you can't uh, have real conversations, you're kind of trouble. Yeah. yeah. What would be the... What, what would... Um, uh, contenders of the other system what would the benefits of that be of a party system yeah of a party system uh, vetting you know uh, in our case anyone can step up and run and even in a party system anyone an independent can step up and run mm-hmm. um, parties do actually do a nice job for the public in vetting candidates to look at their past look at uh, you know sort of their stated goals on social media mm-hmm. and things like that so that you you know generally most parties just want really rational good-hearted people to run right mm-hmm. and so that's one one uh, benefit that you can get out of a party system mm-hmm. the other benefits are mostly uh, like on a municipal level I'm talking uh, the other benefits are mostly just um, funding and things like that it's more of a party and candidate benefit mm-hmm. but yeah I just can't see that our communities in Edmonton would want that and you know that's who we're here to serve with uh, with with you know twelve councillors and a mayor who have such varied backgrounds and don't have any political party affiliations, does everyone sort of have their own personality, almost like character characterized personality on council? No, they're, they're all very bland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Soundbite. Boom. Love it. Just kidding. <laughs> no, of course, uh, and that's one of the uh, the really fun things is yeah. uh, sort of just like getting to know people's personalities and. Mm-hmm. Um, and just trying to work together. You know, it's like um, Councillor Hamilton has mentioned, it's like you get washed up on a desert island mm-hmm. and these are the folks you're with, so yeah. you better learn to make it work. <laughs> like uh, when a decision or when a, a, it comes down for a vote, you can kind of see you like you have a feeling how each councillor is going to vote based on just how you know them and the personality and your experience with them. No. No? No. No, they, they throw you curveballs all the time? All the time. Yeah. Yeah, which is the way it should be. It means that everyone's actually engaged in yeah. having a robust debate. For sure. Yeah. Um, transparency and accountability are huge in public service. Huge. Um, how do you incorporate that into your operations? Okay, so you're touching on something that is actually um, controversial, right? Am I? Great. Yeah. Uh, That's the best that, thing. I don't even know. So, yeah, transparency and accountability is phenomenal and I'm all for it. in fact I just got a motion passed that uh, would increase some of that mm-hmm. transparency and accountability and that was my motion on uh, consulting okay right I read uh, about that yeah and but 
there is also a concern that the public doesn't pay attention to the whole nuance of a conversation. Mm -hmm. They'll see something like uh, $616 million spent on consulting, and a lot of that was um, miscoded, mm -hmm. and some of it we don't even understand what it was for. Mm -hmm. And so our, our job is to try to go through that and see how do we keep that from happening in the future? Because out of that $600 million, if there was, say, $30 million that could have been saved, $30 million can do a lot, mm -hmm. right? It's both an insignific insignificant number in our budget, but also a massively significant number mm -hmm. when it comes to the good we can do. Yeah, so, but in that quest for transparency, mm -hmm. um, I think some of the fear is that the public is going to look at that and say, no one's doing their job right. Oh, okay. When in reality, you're looking at uh, an organization that does the majority of things right. Yeah. But the things that are, are, are not done as right as we would like it to be right. become the topic of conversation and colors people's perspective of the, of the entire organization. Of course. Yeah. yeah. You're only going to get a, you know, you're only going to get um, flack for the things you don't do right. You're never going to really get much applause for the things no. that should that go how they should go. And no right? one's looking for applause. Yeah. But they also, uh, you know, I think that for most people they would they would love it mm -hmm. if uh, what was newsworthy uh, were the things that went right. Yeah. But that's just not the way. It's not the case. That's people not the way news media is monetized. Yeah. So that's never going to happen. I think it's uh, Steven Pinker has the best line on that. He goes. You know, it'd be great if the headlines were like seven billion people didn't die today on the earth, but we're just not programmed. Our brains are programmed to be risk identifying, right? Yeah. Rather than positive identifying, because right. you stand a better chance of dying from something that's bad versus benefiting from something that's right. good. And that's a survival trait, and it is it's important. Mm -hmm. We need to have that. So you initially kind of were looking to go down the federal politics route, right. and. Did, why, why was it that you didn't run a second time or compete a second time? Well, my foray into that was uh, primarily because I was concerned about a few um, issues that you know affected my communities. And so I thought, well, rather than just complain about it, why don't I just see if I can do something about it? Mm -hmm. So I started, you know, a total neophyte, right? Uh, as a, like for being a candidate, no idea how to do that. Yeah. Um, so I was door knocking. Uh, I was having conversations with people. Ultimately, I didn't win, which is totally fine because that, you know, the goal is to serve. Mm -hmm. Winning is a great way to serve, but mm -hmm. there are lots of other ways. But the tough part of all of that, the thing that really um, impacted me, was the fact that I'd heard thousands upon thousands of stories positive and negative mm -hmm. people's successes and their struggles and I had nowhere to put that right I was just carrying it and uh, that threw me for a loop for a little while because once you have once you have that you feel a sense of responsibility mm -hmm. and so when the opportunity came up to run municipally mm -hmm. I was actually quite excited. I was like, this is, this is my chance to serve my community. This is my chance to amplify those successes mm -hmm. and to do what I can to help those who are struggling and to create a community that we can all be proud of. Mm -hmm. And that was my strongest drive. And I come, come by that through uh, my family. You know, my mom taught me early on that um, the best way to have a life of meaning and purpose mm -hmm. is to serve. It's interesting. It, it's it seems like it seems I don't know if it's just a generation gap that hasn't quite gotten bridged to the younger generation yet, and if it's coming. Like I don't know at what age that's passed down, um, but it seems like a lot of people are lacking purpose and meaning in their life. You know, everyone's on the chase for happiness, but happiness is in reality a byproduct to to living meaningful and purposeful pursuits, right? And so, you know, I, I think we're also like we, we've got that issue of privilege where it's we've got so many opportunities that we're depressed because we can't pick one that we think we want to choose because we're just paralyzed by all the different, right. all the different avenues. So here's the secret. Yeah. Pick one. Pick. Exactly. And just do it. You're better and off. Maybe it's not your best fit. Mm -hmm. Then course correct. Mm -hmm. 
but pick one and get started. Yeah. You can always change course. You can always jump to another thing. But if your uh, if your goal is um, to find a career, mm -hmm. great. Um, go for it, and hopefully you have success. If your goal is to make your life meaningful mm -hmm. and to live a life of service, mm -hmm. then that can be expressed in an infinite number of ways. Mm -hmm. So it's a good way to, to drop the constraints. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you were growing up, what kind of direction did your parents give you in terms of your career aspirations or what you wanted to be? They didn't. They didn't. They no. just said, just do what you want. Yeah. But do something. Yeah. Yeah. And so what was going through your mind as, as you were growing up? What did you see yourself doing in the future? Well, you know, I grew up very poor. And uh, so my mom, mother of five kids, uh, you know, she and my father split up when I was four years old. And so she's a single mom um, going to school, wondering how she's going to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. And so what she did is what they used to do back on the farm in Saskatchewan where she grew up is she started to get to know her neighbors mm -hmm. and uh, because they were students my parents lived in uh, in, a, in a neighborhood that also had immigrants and seniors and people with disabilities and other students and working poor and so she started knocking on doors and saying listen we're all struggling a little bit mm -hmm. Um, and this is before you had your Costco's and things like that. She <laughs> said, um, you know, we used to buy things in bulk. Mm -hmm. And so why can't we buy our food in bulk? Mm -hmm. And so she started contacting warehouses. She contacted her neighbors. They pooled their resources. And that's what they started doing is buying food in bulk. And some of the, the neighbors said, you know, where we come from, we, we cook with different foods. Do you think yeah. we can access that? And she said, yeah. let's find out. And lo and behold, they brought that in. And she said, what are you cooking with this? And what that did is every Thursday uh, in the community, a little, little community kitchen in the neighborhood, um, and a little hall, mm -hmm. people would share their recipes from where they came from or your family recipes. And so the neighborhood would be filled with these beautiful smells of mm -hmm. new food and mm -hmm. different food. And our job as kids was go knock on doors and bring out uh, people with disabilities, bring out the seniors, people who wouldn't normally come out. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, just have this community feast yeah and kids were running around parents were talking it was a sense of community and out of that arose a community daycare mm -hmm. and uh, so folks were able to either go back to school or get a second job and then and the neighborhood itself lifted itself up and created more opportunities just by just by connecting that's unbelievable that yeah. just something so simple as starting with food and I mean, there's a ton of stuff surrounded or involved around food, right? But it's it's creates such a connection between people, sharing that meal and especially sharing the traditions of where you come from and the different recipes. Is there one that sticks out above the rest? You really uh, like the Jamaican patties or really like the butter chicken from honestly, India? Honestly, my favorite as a kid was just the empanadas. Yeah. Oh, I, was yeah. Just, I was like, this is the <laughs> coolest thing I've ever seen. What a good idea. Yeah. Uh, what an what an incredible um, example for your mom to set for you for you and your siblings too. I mean, someone who just she was an entrepreneur at spirit, right? Like yeah. she just got out there and hustled and did what she had to. That's really cool. That's so, right. so how did you take those lessons forward into say when you left high school? What were you chasing at that point? Oh, at that point, yeah. uh, well, I mean, come on. When I left high school, I was chasing girls. Oh, yeah, of course. But uh... <laughs> not all the time, I imagine. <laughs> Man, unless I, you were really bad at it, because then I you was, would have had to spend all I your was time. Terrible, man. The worst. <laughs> so it was a pursuit that didn't uh, didn't come to a lot of fruition. Yeah. But let's just say that uh, I learned that there was other things in life, mm -hmm. and so uh, early on I started to pursue an art career mm -hmm. because I didn't feel like there was a lot of doors open for me mm -hmm. at that time. And uh, this was, I mean, nowadays when a youth gets out of high school, I mean we work really hard to show them all of their options and uh, but that just wasn't a reality uh, for me at that time so I thought one thing I'm good at is is art and visual communications and things like that so that's what I went to school for mm -hmm. and um, I became a, a, a goldsmith and I apprenticed this is really cool with a ex-German monk 
ex-German monk. Still German. What guy? Still German. But not a monk. Was he uh, like a Buddhist monk? No, he was a Catholic uh, from Germany. And um, yeah, he had all these stories, you know, just like a sitcom <laughs> uh, where he kept messing up. Like, for example, this one time he was sleeping in, in, the, in, the, in the barn mm-hmm. up in the hay, just shirking his responsibilities. Right. And this older priest came to feed the horses. So he pulled the, the trap door and down came the hay, down came... Uh, this guy and uh, <laughs> he was just always getting in trouble yeah uh, the abbot was saying a prayer over the food and he came out of the kitchen with a big pot of potatoes mm-hmm. uh, just as the abbot was started the prayer and so it was very heavy and he thought okay everyone's heads are down I'm going to just stealthily walk over to the table and put this down but he tripped on his robes and down went the pot potatoes everywhere and he looked up and he saw this one potato roll all the way down the aisle to the abbot's feet and he just looked at him and he pointed to his office oh no sense of humor so this guy was like Kramer his career as a monk didn't go so great yeah um, but he also so let's work with hot was a master stained glass stained glass artist mm-hmm. and so he needed an apprentice and I was his apprentice so I learned how to become a master stained glass artist and we were working on things like synagogues and churches wow. and uh, even mosques or private homes it was beautiful yeah. beautiful work and from that I learned um, the importance of how cons- these are massive installations mm-hmm. right so I learned how to um uh, organize all of this like the, the finances because glasses are incredibly expensive is it oh yeah you can get a one foot by one foot uh, square glass that's easily, easily like a thousand dollars just dep- depending on the type of glass depending on the type of glass color of the treatment yeah that. because you have different minerals creating different colors yeah so um, learned how to project uh, organize a project learned mm-hmm. how to execute it how to budget it and how to actually design something uh, that had obviously thousands of different parts right. to make a cohesive whole, right? Yeah. And then from the sting, uh, from the goldsmithing, I learned the importance of detail, mm-hmm. right? And the value of every single tiny uh, decision mm-hmm. and how that impacts the whole. And uh, so that all informed everything else I did in life. Hmm. Interesting. How do you go about, I'm curious, how do you go about designing a stained glass um, uh piece of art I mean like do you, do you first draw the picture and then divide it up into pieces just and... like how an architect kind of starts building a building right so you you have your, your napkin sketch yeah and then you go from there you keep building it out and building okay. it out and eventually once you've got the idea then you start yeah. to engineer how you're actually going to accomplish this right. thing and how you're going to budget it right what materials are you going to use yeah is it going to be safe <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, isn't some of the old stained glass isn't it starting to warp because it's been around so long? It's it's flowing. Yeah, those 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 pieces that are a thousand years old because glass is a, or glass is a fluid. Yeah, and so yeah, it's actually very thin on the top, very heavy on the bottom because the glass over time is slowly yeah. melting down. Yeah, kind of cool. Interesting. Um, so bridge the gap for me between your career as an artist to then all of a sudden an interest in politics. What was that right. initial spark that got you interested? So I actually there. I mean, you've referenced at the beginning that I've had many different kinds of careers mm-hmm. from like dig- digging ditches to like being lowered into a pit and scooping out fish guts out of a, <laughs> out of a coolie. Everyone's got to have the bad ones too, uh, right? To, um, you know, working with, uh, you know, Alberta education, Northwest Territories education, doing mm-hmm. pedagogy work, which mm-hmm. is, you know, the, the philosophy of teaching teachers how to teach. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and writing a whole bunch of different things. But I was lucky in that when I was in my early 20s, uh, just casting around for a job, um, I got hired by a woman named Pam Barrett, mm-hmm. who used to be the leader of the NDP here in Alberta uh, back in the old Klein days. Okay. She was a, like a total firecracker. Yeah. Um, I, apparently, she and Klein went out drinking a lot. I don't know <laughs> if that's true. Uh, but so that's plausible. Yeah, back when politics were a little different. Yeah, <laughs> and um, but I got this opportunity to work in her office, and that's where I started uh, doing casework and uh, community outreach, and really finding out that you know people all have a story, mm-hmm. and every life has its own um, tragedy and triumph, and 
that really got me hooked because then I moved on to a guy named Raj Panu, his mm-hmm. office in Old Strathcona. He was a sociology professor at the U of A, and uh, because he was so grateful to Canada, he devoted his retirement years to serving. Wow. So he was already done. He'd yeah. had his career, and then he moved into politics in order to return back mm-hmm. what he felt he'd been given by this great country. Mm-hmm. And so those are my examples of what politicians were. He was hardworking. He knew his people. He knew his stuff. He knew the issues. And he was decent and tried to always do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was a, what a politician was. That was mm-hmm. my example. And so um, by the time I left his office, I thought maybe one day, maybe one day that's for me because right. that example to me was a pure service. Mm-hmm. Did you think maybe I could do that or did you think maybe that's an option? Like, did you want I didn't to? think I would be a politician. I mm-hmm. thought maybe one day I'll, I'll be working uh, in that in this realm again yeah uh, because it was like a job for when I was quite for young sure. and um, uh, I didn't have any aspirations to become an office manager or anything like that at that time <laughs> yeah so and you know there was the uh, the call of another profession to me mm-hmm. yeah with all these strong sort of role models that you had in your life your mom and various uh, political figures and, and I'm sure some bosses along the way maybe um, what uh did you sort of build up your own set of morals and values, things that were really important to you? And what would be a few examples of those? I would say that those things were instilled to me at a very early age mm. uh, by my mom. And uh, just watching how hard she always worked. I remember uh, sitting at the top of the stairs as a young boy and watching her and uh, your stepdad going over the books, the family budget. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching her break down in tears. Mm just the stress of knowing that there was never enough. And uh, I think I was probably about six years old, five years old. And I, I, I didn't sleep a lot because I was so worried. And you know, parents, we don't really notice this about our kids, how they can take on worries of, of mm-hmm. their family. So I was worried and I would wonder how I could help my family. And as I got older and I became a teenager, I started to notice, hey, that's not just my family, it's that family and that family and mm-hmm. my friends and this whole neighborhood. And so I would sit there at night wondering, like, why are communities suffering? Why are all these people suffering? We've got this city where there's I could look from, from where I lived and see downtown in the distance mm-hmm. and be like, what goes on there? Mm-hmm. And why are people rich there? And why are people poor here? Mm-hmm. And it was very frustrating and I knew that my parents worked hard they worked double jobs and we're still having <coughs> trouble making ends meet why was that mm-hmm. and so that the, those questions that feeling that like people who work hard should get a fair shake mm-hmm. that we should design and construct a society where everyone can succeed through their hard work should be a thing mm-hmm. and uh yeah, that was instilled in me, right? For, like that was one of my earliest memories. We need to really figure out how to how to channel the young people. I think when when they come up, like someone like you, you saw you saw a problem and you were frustrated by that problem, and you were frustrated by a certain lack of inability to do anything about it. I didn't feel I had a voice. Yeah, like it never once occurred to me, uh, looking downtown, mm-hmm. that one day I'd be working. There. Of course, no, no, it's a pipe dream, right? But you stand as a great example of what can be accomplished when you take the mindset of what can I do versus I'm a victim or poor me, like I'm, I'm in a bad circumstance. You took control of the situation. Right. And we need to figure out how we can trigger that, that channel in people versus the other way. Well, in my office, uh, I've got uh, someone who often challenges those, those concepts. Like, so when someone says, Oh, we can't do this. We can't do that. Mm-hmm. I can't do this. We can't do that. She'll say, "Okay, great." She'll write it down, and then she'll say, "Now change all of those can'ts to won'ts." Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a great exercise. Right? Yeah. And and oftentimes, you know, there's various reasons for that. You're 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 scared that you're gonna fail. You're you know you're worried. You're self defeating. There's you know there's yeah. a there's a psychological concept of. The reason that we're self-sabotaging is because 
we're the only ones who truly know like the the depths of the evil and dark thoughts we have obviously we don't Whoa, yeah no but like when you think about it though like obviously we don't act on them right yeah but when you're young or at any point in your life you know you're sitting in traffic you're frustrated everyone sometimes has that moment where they're just like i wonder if i just drove into the back of that guy you know where's, like, my, where's my bazooka button yeah exactly exactly where's my go-go gadget bazooka but the, the theory goes that because because we we're the only ones that know those dark thoughts about ourselves we almost think that we're not worthy of success because you know the worst parts about you or even just things that you've never told anyone you know so so there's that element of it and we really like the whole the whole way to move past that is to be like look like we all have a light and a dark side there's mm. there's good and there's bad in all of us and that's evidenced by you know the atrocities of the 20th century and and you know they say the the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man and woman and it's just it's a matter of focusing on the good parts and 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 realizing how we can how we can leave this world in a better place versus in a in a worse place you know it's interesting because what you're describing it's sort of like this idea of people, what motivates people to say we can help and we should mm. versus um, why help them? It's going to cost me, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and what I've found is that doing the right thing, the humanitarian thing, mm -hmm. um, is actually always the most economical thing we can do. Right. So... If you're doing things right, it, it, it tends to quiet all of those concerns inside of a person. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, one of the things that we're working on is housing and homelessness. Mm -hmm. And um, what we found is that the cost of not doing anything is enormous. Policing costs, mm -hmm. healthcare costs, mm -hmm. um, all of the layers of bureaucracy or services that have to be involved. Mm -hmm. By not doing anything, but dealing with the the uh, pro like just dealing with the effects of the problem. Yeah, it's enormous. Yeah. Whereas if we just said right from the outset, let's just deal with the problem itself. Let's mm -hmm. get to the roots. So we're not hacking at the at the branches here. Mm -hmm. If we just get to the root, um, not only do we solve the problem, but it costs us way less money. Mm -hmm. So when I hear about uh, any controversy about those sorts of things. Uh, I just wish there was a way to better communicate to folks like, listen, you're not losing out by us yeah. helping. Yeah. You're gaining. Yeah. Yeah. So what in, in, in that particular topic of homelessness, what are sort of the key fundamental things that need to be done in order to help alleviate the issue? Well, the, the answer to homelessness is homes. Yeah. It's, it's that simple. So what the city has done recently is mm -hmm. uh, we've uh, realized that we've got a lot of red tape that makes it very difficult for uh, professional, responsible providers to build uh, in ways that they can build uh, supportive housing. Mm -hmm. We're removing that red tape. Because right now, what people associate with uh, supportive housing mm -hmm. is not supportive housing at all. So, for example, uh, a community can have uh, maybe a lot of social problems, um, maybe some violence, maybe you know things going on in the street you don't want happening. And they end up blaming people who are homeless for that mm -hmm. those aren't the people who are, are causing those problems by right. and large I mean there's outliers to everything but usually it's coming from people who are basically slumlords mm -hmm. you know to put it frank who are just uh, they're renting out very cheap they don't maintain uh, the properties they don't have any uh, professional supervision um, and those are the people who are uh, operating now mm-hmm what we need to do is transfer that to professional services. And that's what we're doing at the city now. Is we're, we're actually, we realize like this, this problem that we just ignored mm -hmm. is not being addressed. And the way it is being handled is causing us more problems. Mm -hmm. So let's just do it right. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you, if you pick up a homeless person in the street and put them in a home, that doesn't solve the problem, all their no. problems. You also need all the supports that go behind it, which they don't get from mm -hmm. these sort of flop house kind of models yeah from the professional mo uh, uh, models you get uh, you get staff who is supportive okay you get ties into our system so that people can actually get the help they need maybe you know any one of us could be that person any one of our family could be mm -hmm. that person you know it, 
an incidence of mental illness or, or a trauma, mm -hmm. um, a disability, um, a sudden uh, health incident. Mm -hmm. All of these things can lead to someone who doesn't have a support network mm -hmm. living on the streets. If we have professional services reversing that, connecting people, giving them those supports, mm -hmm. suddenly their concern isn't how do I find a sandwich mm -hmm. so I don't starve. Their concern is now that my basic needs are taken care of, what can I make out of my life? Mm -hmm. And the unfortunate part is that our, as the general public, our perception of, of homelessness is often negatively colored by a few bad interactions, oh, yeah. right? By people who are violent, but that's, that's far more the exception than the rule. And what we're talking about is people with trauma. Mm. And so it all comes back to what kind of society do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a society where we say, you know what, they're choosing that life mm -hmm. and let them rot? Yeah. Or do you want to live in a society that says like, actually, uh, we understand, we're smart enough to get that nothing is in isolation. Why is that person like that? Yeah. Probably some kind of trauma, some kind of illness, something. And if we can address that thing, and if we learn how to do that preventatively and mm -hmm. proactively, mm -hmm. um, we can, by and large, I mean, 99% eliminate that problem. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I hear people, you know, utter the phrases, oh, just thinning of the herd, right? Like for safe injection sites, like right. I was having this discussion with someone and someone made an off, offhand remark and just said, oh, you know, if they die, it's thinning the herd. And that's just like, from both an emotional and a practical standpoint, that just killed me inside because it's, A, that's not practical because obviously we haven't fixed any problem. What's to say the next generation of people coming up aren't gonna experience the same issues that led to that problem in the first place? Not only that, but we seem to have a higher prevalence of mental health issues now. So it's just practically that makes no sense. And emotionally, it's like, when did we become so so jaded to think that like this is a fellow human being and if you could live their life through their eyes and their experiences what makes you think you would be any different than that well and that requires a certain amount of uh, emotional intelligence and empathy mm. right and it's hard to come by if you're not connected mm -hmm. to people so i mean there's that that famous commercial now uh from the uk where uh they asked they were just asking people like so what's a acceptable percentage or what's an acceptable number of deaths uh, from traffic incidents in our country? Yeah. And people are like, I don't know, like 10% or 20 people or something, right? <laughs> and, uh, They're trying to answer it like professionally, but yeah, yeah. the answer is zero, obviously. And so this one guy, they asked him and he gave his answer and then uh, they brought out his family. Mm. And so he's looking at his family from across this hall and they said, how about now? And he was in tears and he said, zero. Mm. So when it when it, it, it hits home, obviously people, you know, their mm -hmm. empathy and their, their love is awoken. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't talk about that enough in politics. We don't talk about the fact that we're human beings. Mm -hmm. This is not some faceless corporation, that your city government. It is human beings, and we should make room for human experiences mm -hmm. in the way we govern. I, um, the person, the person I'm talking about, he's, he's close to the issue, but from the other side, like he, he's more on the, um, he's experienced it from a professional side. So he's seen a lot of the bad stuff and is jaded by it. So it's, yeah. it, it's really, you know, like a lot of, a lot of people it's... have bad experiences with a certain population and then all of a sudden their, their, their view of that population is tarnished. I get, I got a buddy in the military mm. and he's come back from multiple tours with a certain specific outlook on uh, different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. You can't tell someone that their life experience is wrong. Yeah, That's the thing, you can't. But if you can't tell someone who's uh, jaded that their life experience is wrong, you also can't tell someone who's not jaded that their life experience is wrong. Right. So um, m maybe there's a reason to be cynical, mm -hmm. but also maybe there's a reason to be hopeful. And the question is, what path do we want to take? Mm -hmm. What you just said about introducing the more hum human empathetic element to politics is, is really interesting because last night I was watching a documentary on uh, the fall of Soviet Union and the Reagan-Gorbachev thing, and that's exactly what switched Reagan 
from a hard hard nosed standpoint of the evil empire of the USSR to let's reach out to these guys. He said he I think his line was let's picture an Ivan and Ivanka in line at a DMV with a Tim and a Sally. And if there was no language barriers, do you think they'd be talking about the politics of their countries? Or do you think they'd be talking about their kids and their school and their vacations? It's like we need to reintroduce the human element to politics because people don't start wars. Governments start wars. And that's just it. We're in an age where we're starting to get a a little more um, separated. I get concerned when I see the sort of tribalism Mm -hmm. starting to happen where people are retreating into their their camps and saying, us, not them. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that maybe there's uh, a limited amount of resources or a limited amount of space or a limited amount of anything, which um, I I understand the the mindset. I just think that there are better solutions than to uh, break apart. I think we're going to find better solutions when we work together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100% agree. And Councillor, I want to be respectful of your time, but I do also, before you go, I want to ask, you know, uh, just quickly, what are some things happening in your ward in the city that are exciting you? I have moment? so many great things to say about my ward. Yeah. Our community leagues are the best. We have community leagues who are doing phenomenal things. Uh, if I had time, I'd list everything that they're doing. <laughs> but... Uh, Honestly, I, I love my award. I love it so much because mm-hmm. we've got challenges, we've got successes, and we've got a bright future. You know, it is common knowledge that the Northeast that I represent has been a little bit uh, forgotten. Mm-hmm. And that's not happening anymore. Awesome. Uh, we are making our voice loud and proud, mm-hmm. and really, really good things are happening. All right. And last question What's your favorite thing about Edmonton? And bonus points if you can say something that hasn't been said before. Really? Yeah. My favorite thing about Edmonton? Okay, this is a little bit weird. Perfect. Okay, but uh, so my father, his culture is Cree. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Cree word for God uh, is pronounced, depending on where you're from, mostly it's just like Manitou, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Sometimes it's uh, shortened, sometimes it's lengthened. Mm -hmm. Um, Right in the middle of the word Edmonton. Mm -hmm is the word Manto. And so I think of Edmonton as a place where you can create anything you want. Mm, like it. I like it. Definitely get the bonus points on that one. <laughs> well, again, thanks so much. I appreciate your time and your insight. This is uh, really enjoyable, thoughtful, and, uh, and enlightening. Right on, man. Good Take to meet care. You. See ya. Once again, huge thanks to Councillor Paquette and his staff for making time for me. Uh, Last thing for the day, this podcast was brought to you by the Alberta Podcast Network, City Champions Home, and home to many great Alberta-made podcasts. And one on there that I'd really suggest checking out is Creative Block, where Kyle Marshall of Media Lab YYC interviews artists and entrepreneurs about where they came from, what they're doing, and where they want to go. So if you've got a natural curiosity about people like I do and and like Kyle does, you'll find his podcast endlessly fascinating. So check it out at creativeblock.transistor.fm. As always, I'll link everything in the episode notes for easy access. Again, thanks guys for listening and we'll see you next week.